due to the content of this episode, it's really important that I place a trigger warning here at the very beginning. Since we are talking with a wonderful death doula, there are conversations around death, end-of-life care, even the right to die with dignity. And because of that, I want to give you a heads up before diving into this episode. There is also talk of sexual assault and sexual harassment. So if these topics are triggering for you or you are not in a headspace where you can listen to these sort of things, I encourage you to skip this episode and know that I'll be back next week with a totally different topic that we will talk about. It's most important that you take care of yourself and listen to material that is not going to trigger you. And if you're struggling, please feel free to reach out. I'm here to support you. And so are many other women in this space. Take care of yourself. All right, Megan, I'm so excited to have you on this episode of the podcast. And to our listeners, if you're getting a little extra noise, Professor is here and I'm too, I'm too nice to kick him out. love that name he's, like, oh. he's very old and wise it always gets yes. him um, some like extra him. love at the vet you know like okay. <laughs> so you're a you're one of those people that's like a serial entrepreneur multi-passionate <laughs> like I just love it so I don't I like, love it that's the nice way to put it yes <laughs> yes well, see I get it like I'm the same way. I want to learn. I mean, look at all the books. I want to learn all the time, do all the things, share all the knowledge. So I love seeing how you're doing that. Yeah. I also call it having ADD. <laughs> yes, ADHD here. Yeah. Um, yep, I can't make up my mind. <laughs> right. My Goodreads, I was looking at it last night and it said I was currently reading 50 books and I was like, I should finish a few before I start another. Yeah. That's like me. (laughs) (laughs) So which came first? Uh, so it was in college. I got the, it was see my junior year. Um, and I just, I had this feeling in high school too. I remember it was my junior year of high school and, you know, they call it senioritis, Mm -hmm. but I started to get junior year I remember I just wanted out. Like I was like, I'm done. I I want to move on with what I'm going to be doing in life. And so in college, um, I had, I was a year into my, um, my, at at the school I went to, it's called our concentration instead of major. And I had chosen music industry Mm. and, uh, which is an interesting, (laughs) an interesting bag to put all your eggs into. (laughs) Right. And so, you know, I had been um, working in an internship and in the music industry and um, gone through some stuff uh, as a female in in the music industry, working around a lot of male narcissists. Oh, no. And I realized that a lot of females, but especially young women, um, were we, no one was telling us, Hey, this is what you're gonna, this is what's going to happen. This is Mm -hmm. what you're going to experience. You're not going to escape this without experiencing some form of, uh, sexual harassment, um, and worse. And so I decided to start a nonprofit. Mm 
Mm. So that was my first venture into the entrepreneurial world. I kind of think it was a good one in the sense of, um, you know, as a non, when you start a nonprofit, you can't necessarily own it. Right. And so that was a big old learning curve of, you know, at 21, we're 21, 22 is when I started that and realizing, you know, I had to form a board, board of directors and mm-hmm. I had to learn so quickly, you know, about personality types and um, what being a leader versus being bossy yeah. um, was all about. And um, it was a big learning lesson because I was definitely bossy. And um, and I think it was because of the aggressive behavior I was experiencing from the industry itself. And that's because that's I, I realized that was my passion is to, to help other women going in there to just have it, it catches you off guard. And I wanted women to have tools so they weren't so caught off guard. Yeah. So yeah, that's what started that. And that lasted about seven or eight years. We were actually the first nonprofit at that time to get our 5013 status when everything had changed. Um, oh, wow. at that time, a lot of the rules and regulations around nonprofits were changing because of all the corruption with nonprofits and money and stuff like that. So it was a really strict process that time. It always has been, right. but at that particular time, it was 2003. And so everything was just a learning curve. And I realized after that, I was like, it can only get easier from here in the sense of starting a nonprofit. That was probably, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'd recommend that to everybody who wants to start, you know, in, in this world that that was kind of, um, in fact, I had somebody tell me a couple of years after I started that nonprofit, they had said they would never go into the nonprofit world again, as far as like finding one, starting it, um, unless they had a million dollars in the bank. Right. I remember thinking that's really extreme. And then, I mean, now I preach that, that same thing. I tell people go for it, but you're always going to be feeling like you're playing catch up mm-hmm. unless you got that million dollars in the bank and you really have the funding. You're just constantly asking people for money then, whether it's mm-hmm. organizations or individuals, the point is that you're still trying to run a business and trying to fundraise at the same time. So that was my biggest lesson there. And so it has been easier mm. in the sense of, yeah, I started there and realized don't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that again. What is so hard? I think nonprofits are so beautiful. <laughs> they do such important work. Um, and obviously the mission of yours was so important from what you were experiencing and seeing. It was something that was really needed, but it's kind of something that I think is really um, idolized um, or idealistic is, yeah. is that idea. I know when I was graduating from college, you know, I was like, I'm graduating with two majors because I can't make up my mind. I've got that women and gender studies and that English degree. And like, it'll be so easy to find a job. Like maybe I'll just work at a nonprofit, like all this stuff. But what you don't realize when you're trying to save the world is there's no money in trying to save the world. Um, and it's beautiful. We have to have people out there doing it. Um, but it's not easy. And I kind of had a a similar experience. I was doing an internship at uh, the Red Cross even. And and I was in that department where we were the ones like doing the fundraisers and asking for the money. And I'm very conflict avoidant. Um, yeah, yeah, it's hard to ask for money. It is like, I, 
hated that part. Mm -hmm. Like I can write the letters, I can print them, but I don't want to be the one taking them or the whatever. I'll go pick the stuff up, but like having to go and be like, hi, can I get something? Oh, hate it. Um, but it yeah. has to happen. Like, I mean, if the Red Cross has to do it, like small <laughs> nonprofits are one hundred percent having to do it, right? Yeah. yeah, that was that was the hard part. I bet it, it's because it's. It, I realize you know it's so much. More, you know, you're asking, but the people you're asking have been in business for years, and here mm-hmm. I am, this twenty two year old. That's just like, yeah, you want to give me a hundred thousand dollars, you know, or whatever the amount was. And, you know, it turns into, you know, it is a negotiation. It is a business transaction. Um, You know, and sometimes there's this thought process of, but I'm going to do good with it. And the person who owns the business that's going to give you the money does not care. Like I, I didn't realize that wasn't that wasn't the bottom line that a lot of people do not give money bottom line because they are passionate about that nonprofit. Oftentimes it is just another partnership in the community. And I had to really just realize that I had to change my mindset if I wanted to quote unquote, play the game. Right. And it's like, don't like, you can't even start thinking about how for them it's this big tax write off and they have to do so much of that. Right. Less about that. Right. Exactly. And so that it makes it really heartbreaking because you think someone, or I would imagine you would think someone's really invested in your mission and they're just like, well, you know, I've got this like a million I have to give away throughout the year. Like, yeah. (laughs) And then you realize, you know, and and that was, that opened my mind up to why the laws were changing at that time is I would talk to people that have, you know, were definitely people that donated often to nonprofits. And I realized mm, it's another power trip for a lot of people. It's a way for them to try to control you and your mission. And Mm -hmm. so it was, I was thrown into it, not, you know, because again, my major was music industry, which did include business and marketing as part of that. But not, I just don't think you learn these things in college. Um, Mm -hmm. I've said it time and time again, that that internship as uh, difficult as it was. Um, and I mean that just because of what I had to endure and experience is still more valuable than anything I ever learned in the classroom. Yes. I think that's, you know, a really complicated thing. And I, you know, like we were talking about the ADHD, the ADD, the need to keep learning. I also have my master's in library and information science and a doctorate in education. So like, I can't stop. Right. But that was a huge problem. We talked about my master's um, because who knew to be a librarian, you needed a master's, right? Like when I, when I would tell people that they would just be like, what? Um, But so much of what like the hands-on, the actually being able to answer the reference questions, to find the articles, the books, that takes so much practice. Like <laughs> I needed so many more classes on doing the actual things as opposed to like that theory-based stuff, yeah. which is why for my my doctorate, I went for a theory, uh, I'm sorry, a um, doctorate where it was more about doing the things. <laughs> That is like probably the number one piece of advice I give to people is, you know, even if you're not like that kind of, it's not in your personality type to learn that way, necessarily like the the do it, the kinesthetic, Mm -hmm. 
it still doesn't matter. Like just, you can talk theory all day long in those classes, you know? And, and yeah, I kind of, I'm like, oh, that was a lot easier than the real world. Cause it was, it was easier to sit in a class for two hours and talk about, you know, the, uh, harassment and racism or whatever we were talking about in music, Mm -hmm. in the industry, but it's a totally different thing to actually then go put yourself in the middle of that kind of behavior and be treated like that. Oh my gosh. And have to figure out how to navigate, um, all the things that you hear about in that classroom. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it was, I don't think anything can really prepare you for that. Yeah. And I think that, I think that applies to like people's businesses and things too. Like you can purchase all the courses, do all the free trainings, all of this stuff. But if you aren't ready to like, just get in front of the camera and make a fool of yourself doing a reel or a TikTok or sit down and, um, write that Instagram post, there's nothing like that. Like actually doing it, you know, fucking it up. Like I keep an explicit rating on the podcast. Um, (laughs) Oh, good to know. I need to start telling people that. (laughs) (laughs) I need to start telling people that. Um, But, you know, there's nothing like that experience. I think that's something, I mean, I see that as such a problem having worked in higher ed for so long. Um, there's just so many things that can't replace that experiential learning. Right. Um, Oh, and like, so the industry that I'm in now or the profession, um, uh, I'm a death doula and that's kind of the number one problem I see in this profession. Mm -hmm. Um, we are an unregulated industry. And so therefore all, yes, you can get certified, And, um, but it is somebody else's certification, you know, there's not an overseeing board saying we're all taking the same certification. And so the, the problem that I see again with going, you know, you can take all the classes you want is that is what's happening. People are going out there. Um, they're taking the courses, uh, they're getting, becoming certified, but pretty much all the courses are online. Yeah. And, you know, they then call someone like me that's been doing it and they ask for an internship or an apprenticeship. And unfortunately, some of the um, training programs out there are telling their students to go do this. Mm. And what they're not understanding is in order to provide an internship, as I've done before, that is work. Yes. Time and work. And these people are just calling all day long, emailing me. Some of them actually have expectations that this is my, like, I should do this for free. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's, it's, I'm seeing more and more professions where this is becoming more of a problem. Cause again, they can get all the training out there. They can take all the courses, but I do understand that, you know, if you're going to go accompany somebody as they're dying, and be their doula, you want to have experienced that before. You can't gain your experience through an online course. You can't really gain the experience going and volunteering for hospice. You get to have some experience there, but not what you will be doing as a doula. And so I, I, I see this huge disconnect. And uh, that's why I started the death doula mentor is I realized there's another gap in our, our profession. Cause at the, you know, end of life has a huge gap 
of services that people need that they don't have access to. And that's kind of what the death doula profession is doing is filling that gap. But then I realized within our own profession, all these doulas are walking out with a certification yet have never actually been with somebody as they die. Yes. It's such a huge problem. I feel like a lot in the online space. Like I had someone tell me once as I was stepping more into the entrepreneurship, well, just take the cheapest certification you'll find and then you'll feel like good about it. And I'm like, I'm in the middle of finishing a doctor, like the least cheap thing you can do. And you're telling me you think I would feel good about paying for a 17, essentially a diploma meal. For, I'm like so mad my access coming up. <laughs> like, so true. Yeah. And so yeah. I think it's so pervasive and it's terrifying. Like, uh, uh, uh. I've had so many people ask me like, cause I, I recently created just a small little mini course as I call it. And all I've, and, and I'm, I tell people, you know, it's just literally how to become a death doula. Mm-hmm. Um, because they, you know, I, I've, all I did is I took all the questions that I've gotten for the last four years and turned it into a Q and a on a video of, well, here's what you guys ask all the time. You're asking for my time. I mean, people want to talk to me for an hour or longer. And I wasn't charging for that for a long time until I, my husband was like, you do realize you're just giving away 15 hours a week. Yeah. Like, you know, and as an entrepreneur, I so knew better. Um, Mm -hmm. I would have probably yelled at some of the people I've mentored over the years and been like, what are you thinking? Yeah. I thought I was doing it for the good of my industry. And then I realized there is nothing good I was doing for my profession at that time, because now I'm acting like a codependent help, just allowing them to think that, yeah, just call up anybody that's a professional doula and just ask for their time for free. And that's okay. Cause it's not, mm-hmm. you know, we have to put value on people's time, especially mm-hmm. if they're doing this for a living. And I think I see that in the online world a lot of, you know, I see um, fellow people, especially marketing professionals post about this all the time. And I know you know what I'm talking about. You know, people are inquiring about your services. They're kind of doing the poaching game of how much can I get out of you for free? Mm -hmm. And I think it's probably the number one lesson of being an entrepreneur is some seriously strict boundaries. Yes. Oh my goodness. That's the second time this has come up today with someone um, is I think the boundaries are important. And a lot of us that are in these, I feel like to be an entrepreneur, you have to care about people and you have to have a helping mentality. Like there are definitely people out there who don't embody that. And that's only going to get them so far or with certain people, but you hear the word doula and all of these things. And people are going to know you're naturally really giving. And sometimes yep. they take advantage of it. Um, and I hate that that's happening in your space. And I want to backtrack just a little because I'm familiar with the term death doula, um, Mm -hmm. but only, you know, probably surface level. And I've seen since it is like you're talking about a little unregulated. um, Mm. I think there are a lot of different uh, spins that people put on it. So how would you describe what a death doula is and what they do? Yeah, it's awesome. So a lot of people, it's amazing what some people actually think that I do. Yeah. I need to do a few memes about it. <laughs> of, of, you know, one of those memes of this is what I, you know, this is what people think I do. Yes. This is what I really do. Um, so a death doula is simply the word doula just means to serve. 
Mm-hmm. And so we are so much of what a birth doula does, which they are a regulated um, profession industry, but we essentially um, we're here to serve the person that is dying or their support system. Mm. So a lot of people feel that the phone calls I take are from people that are dying. When in reality, I would say 50% of the phone calls I take are from someone, an adult child, mm-hmm. um, a sister, a brother. It's some, it's somebody else that is seeing that there is a lack of support that they feel that their loved one needs. Mm-hmm. And so the best way that I feel to truly describe this role because there are a lot of different services that we can offer within this unregulated umbrella without starting to step onto other roles that do require certification or a degree in something. So like therapy, mm-hmm. um, even funeral directors, we definitely cannot be involved with any part of planning someone's death um, or what happens to them after they die in the sense of if that's what a funeral director does. Um, so what we do is often it's just a form of project management. Mm. These are a lot of families just simply want to be present with the end of life process, right? And grieve and go through all of that because as someone's dying, there's the term anticipatory grief. And we do start the grieving process before the person has actually died. And so that affects our brain and our ability to function and to do everyday tasks. And most of us work, you know, so we have a job plus we're trying to help somebody in that process um, and trying to process all of it as it's happening. And it just usually turns out into a big old crisis. And so we are often called in to simply kind of help manage day-to-day tasks um, not necessarily like, you know, as a caregiver would, um, as a caregiver role, but for an example, when I'm hired, um, to help with the whole process, it usually starts out with, they want to create a plan. So just like if you're going to have a baby, you create that birth plan from the moment you, you know, some people start earlier in the process. Some people wait until, you know, a month before they have a child. Same thing with death. You know, some people will, they'll get a diagnosis and they realize, okay, I'm probably going to die from this. Mm -hmm. And so they really start realizing there's a checklist of stuff that I have to get done, whether it's like a bucket list kind of stuff, but also just, you know, how do I save my family from stuff that I hadn't taken care of, a will, what my wishes are where my passwords are, (laughs) all that stuff that people will need um, after you're gone. And then there's those people that are just going denial, right? And so it's their loved one that calls because they realize um, I need my so-and-so's pass. I'm going to, you know, and they, they realize that person can't necessarily do that. And so we just simply step in you know, figure out where the need is and then just kind of start to fill those gaps. I'd say the number one reason that a death doula is called is for the service that's called bedside vigiling. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, That's for the people that, you know, now we're talking about the active stage of dying, which is usually two to three weeks. Um, now the true active stage is usually days. Um, 
But there is a process that is pretty common with most of all of us as we die and there will be similarities. And so, um, you know, hospice, as it's become so regulated over the years because of insurance and because of Medicare, um, they a lot of people will call because they're dissatisfied with hospice. Now, that's not fair to hospice Mm -hmm. because ask any hospice worker and they wish they could do more. 100%. 100%. Any, any healthcare worker is being rushed from place to place to place. Exactly. Exactly. And it's just a system that's been breaking and breaking and breaking for years. Mm-hmm. And then we come, you know, a pandemic happens and boom, you see, you now are just honing in and the light is shining so brightly on exactly what is really wrong. Right. And that did happen to hospice. I mean, it's mm-hmm. slowly been happening, but the pandemic also kind of like shine that light on, on specifically hospice also. And so, yeah, they will call, they will definitely reach out to doulas because here's the one, I would say the biggest misconception about hospice is that it is 24 seven care. You have access to hospice 24 seven, but does the, that does not mean that it's around, you know, the clock care. And the second misconception is that somebody will be there from hospice when you die. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, if you die at your appointment time for that day, you know, like, so if you want to watch the watch and be like, well, I think I can hold up till four today. I mean, that's just not how death works. It can, right. you know, and there's definitely some fun little phenomenon, like phenomena is about, you know, can we have a little bit more control over a death? And I, I have seen that. Yes, we can, mm-hmm. but we can't control when someone's going to be there. Mm-hmm. And so people call death doulas because they do want somebody, even if they're not in the room, that's just maybe in the home, um, around or accessible, even this, like through zoom when the process starts, because mm-hmm. they do want, there's so many things that happen, you know, as someone's dying, just like in birth, you're like, wait, what was that? You know, like, I, I, don't, I don't remember seeing that in that blog. I don't remember. Did we talk about this Right thing with death? You know, um, it's easy to kind of get spooked at times. And so if you have a death doula there, you just simply are being reassured through the whole process. And the main role is that we ease the anxiety. And I think that's really important. Um, we recently lost within the past year as, as everybody has, I feel like someone, um, and it was very much a situation where there was hospice and it was this waiting game. And so just everything you're talking about, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we just, you know, went through this over the past year and it's, I think it's really beautiful and hard what you all do because so many people are really, I guess, privileged in the fact they haven't had to watch someone die before. Um, and I mean, there's no great way, (laughs) you know, to lose someone, whether it's quick or slow or anything like that. But I think it's really hard for people when they've never, you know, seen someone get to this aging process or this terminal illness and it's it, like it's the final stages. Um, it can be really hard and really scary. And even just being like, Um, I think there's that part of that denial that like, they're going to get better and, uh, you know, that's just often not the case. Um, and so having people that get that and that can deal with the spooks or, you know, I think there, I I've heard a lot of stories from healthcare professionals. You just kind of know, you know what I mean? Like 
you yeah. know, and they tend to know. Um, and I think you can help kind of ease that um, when you have someone who is more experienced, because most of us aren't going to be right. Yeah, that's and, you know, and there, there's the it's interesting since the pandemic. I don't know what because it's not like people qualify for this um, because of the pandemic. I think the pandemic has maybe helped people shift their mindset a little bit more around mortality and that we are all going to die. Mm-hmm. And and so a lot of the phone calls that I get. So I, I've shifted my business with mentoring a lot more now. I, I set aside three days a week now to mentor other doulas. Oh, wow. And Um, and that's just a a shift that I see as a need right now. And then the other part that, um, that I serve. So, you know, I, I kind of took all calls, right. I would take, there wasn't really, I wasn't saying no. And, uh, I mean, that's another piece of advice I I give to doulas learn how to say no. Um, not everybody is meant to be your client. Mm -hmm. I mean, it goes for any business, but right for, but for this business and you nailed it. Because the word doula, we just there. There's this personality type of we should help everybody, and that's not the case. And so, I realize that there are so many people out there that choose to want to do um, two things: either one called maid, which is medical assist assist in dying, uh, or death with dignity. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and um, the other is the said or be said, which is just voluntary stopping eating and drinking. Uh huh. And there's so many moral issues around those two things. And a lot of hospices will not serve somebody that is choosing to do one or the other or both, or we don't really do both, but they won't consider working with you if you're choosing one of those options. Cause it's kind of like, and I'm going to go back and put a trigger warning on the beginning of our episode. Cause some of yeah. the things we're talking about, um, maybe we'll do that at the end. So I can make sure I'm getting some of the right terms, but I guess in some ways those are going starting to toe the line of like assisted suicide, right? If you're watching someone just choose to, to fade away, like what is the medical obligation of being like, no, I'm hooking you up with TPN. I guess that's extreme, but like, what is the obligation? Yeah. And that, so, you know, it was interesting. I got a phone call yesterday from, um, a nonprofit in my state that specifically helps with this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they're, they have found a workaround for one of the issues, which is, um, you have to be able to swallow the medication that you're given. Um, well, a lot of people with, um, whatever kind of disease or illness they have, that's leading to the, cause a lot of people also forget that the, oh, to qualify for made is really hard. Mm-hmm. It is not, I mean, Really, it, it it's just so hard for people to qualify for yeah. it. And so it's definitely like they have gone through a process to get that medication. That medication is also can be exp- pretty expensive. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the problem, like this person reached out to me to, to see if I knew a nurse that could do a specific procedure, not to administer the meds, but to just set them up so they could administer it themselves. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And I both have medical family. I know. I okay. So, you know, yeah. And yeah, so, yeah. Which has uh, been going on forever. As, but I just has, don't talk about it. Yeah. Is and what I have heard. Like, yeah. It's just speak. And here's why. So, 
you know, she knew she was about three hours away from where I'm from. And she's like, I don't know one nurse in your area that can do it, that will do this procedure. And I remember when she called, I was like, I'll be honest, either do I. Yeah. Um, and I go, and I, it's not that I haven't tried it's, you know, you put your feelers out and you just get a lot of pushback. Either they'll use the word liability. Well, this nurse specifically went over the liability with me and there really is none. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had lawyers try to argue it too. And I'm like, there's two forms that say you cannot be held liable or responsible. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much more black and white it can get saying that you cannot be held responsible for this. So I, I know that it's still essentially coming down to a moral yeah. issue. Um, and again, I'm never going to judge somebody for that, but I just think it's, it, it is hard when you, you know, reach out to so many nurses or so many of a certain medical, you know, like in the medical profession, because I actually found out this procedure does not have to be done by a medical professional. It's mm-hmm. just that the client themselves would prefer a nurse. Yeah. And it's, I was, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Like, I mean, I lived in the South from, I guess I'm still in the South technically, even though I'm close to DC, but yeah. you know, like, um, it, it's, you see it often where people won't give birth control pills. Like, yeah. do you, th- like, who believes that actually still happens? Um, yeah. like I know even like in my insurance, it's not coded for not having babies. Like it's coded for something else, like yeah. for painful periods. Um, but like, then like they won't give plan B or all these other things in the, the pharmacist. And I don't know how true this is, but in the South, it was very common for the pharmacist to just be like, I morally disagree with this and not give you the medication. So it's complicated on both ends of the life spectrum. (laughs) Oh, I, I have totally seen the exact same kind of things happen at end of life of pharmacists not be okay with certain things, uh, nurses not be, you know, we deal with it with hospice. Um, I, yeah, I had a client where, they were assigned a certain nurse at this hospice and we all had, you know, our, our group talk. And cause there was a, I think there was a social worker in that meeting also, but it was to say, you know, we're not going to let anybody else from this hospice know that this person is choose chosen to do visa. Mm-hmm. I remember I was like, why? They're like, because at any point, all it takes is one nurse to say they're not on board and that can change. I mean, that literally affects how that person wanted to die because of that nurse and their moral, uh, you know, how they believe, um, which is fine. I hope is where I get a little defensive. And that's why, and that's when I say, well, I hope somebody honors their wishes when they die. Right. Right. It's okay. This isn't their, this isn't their death. This yeah. is how this person, you know, and if they've gone through the legal hoops, um, you know, it, it, it is hard to watch somebody say, you know, cause a lot of hospice organizations will, their mission is, you know, they feel that nobody should have to rush their death, that they have, they can offer everything that they, to make sure they're not in pain. Who can argue like what your level of pain that, is, right? That's like- the one, yeah. Like I, I have, have a chronic, that. 
have a chronic illness that's very painful. It's Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And for me, I'm hypermobile. So my levels of pain are very different than other people where like the vascular type of this, they could die from having a a sneezing, like, (laughs) like, you know, like it's very, it's such a range. And I think that's like one of these big things Americans aren't great about is saying we have different morals and thought processes and that's cool and that's okay. Like I will let you do your thing and I will do my thing. We forget that other people's um, choices don't directly impact us. Like, of course, like if you're um, in the room or helping care for this person, you know what's going on, but it's still like you're saying you're not the one, you don't have to do that choice, right? Like, it's just like terminating a pregnancy. Um, I say that all the time, like it's their choice. Like you don't have to ever get one. Like <laughs> that's cool. If you don't ever yeah. want to get one, it's cool. If you need to get one, like whatever. And it isn't, it, isn't it amazing? We live in a place where you can have that choice. Amen. Most- I'm like in most states. Um, and we're looking you know, at you, Texas, right? And, <laughs> and and you know, we see that also end of life with you know death with dignity, um, and how many states offer that. And so, uh, you know, and people traveling to those states for that kind of service, yes. I still I'm like that's also half ass backwards too that we it still is. have to you know like up and move to another state in order to die. And to qualify for a certain time, because these conversations come up in some of my, my Ehlers-Danlos groups, because I deal with my pain, but that doesn't mean that like everybody can. And I'm in a state where I can have a lot of resources that lets me (laughs) deal with my pain where not everybody has that. And so I, I, it like breaks my heart. Like that's the point they're at, but I also, I get it. Like, Yeah. And we're, you know, we're, we're, it's interesting because being in a state that's pretty dang liberal, like we're really on the cutting edge right now of, um, psychedelics, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, right now it's, um, psilocybin, but yeah. Uh, for end of life. And oh, for so, end of life, like I thought you were like meaning like the microdosing for like treatment for like anxiety. We are for mental health. Yeah. So we're I've never heard of that. Yeah. So we're on the cutting edge for mental health, but also um end of life is just highly focusing on this. Um because mm. it is so visual. Like we know that we can visualize things that can ease anxiety. It yes. can uh, you know, it it just there's so much that can be done with it. And so um, it can help a lot of the pain. A lot of people don't realize the end of life. A lot of the pain does come from, from emotional triggers mm, that we just that. never dealt with. Yeah. And usually by the time you're at a certain stage in that journey, you're not going to go back and work on all that shit. No, <laughs> no, you like, no, it, it's why I went through what I did. And, and, you know, I didn't, uh, I did my own life review work, um, in 2020 because I, I have Crohn's disease. Oh yeah. So I was diagnosed when I was 15. Oh yeah. And it was just so intrusive as a 15 year old to have to go through those tests. And I mean, it sucks at any age, but when you're a 15 year old female that really gives way too many shits about her social life, it was brutal. I can only imagine. Yeah. And you know, cause food is everything with that disease. Mm -hmm. And so, um, it was when I was, so in 2020, I, um, my doctor died and we Mm -hmm. had been close for 10 years. I had 
Um, she was my doctor. I did some of her marketing and her website. And so she, um, she was, I was kind of a medical mystery because there were, she just was like, we know that there is something that you're eating that is causing so much inflammation and so many issues. And we had done every intolerance test out there that I thought. Right. And so she had sent me to her when she, cause she knew when um, she knew she was going to die. And so um, she had referred me to one of her um, students cause she taught at the college here. And uh, so he had looked at all of her chart notes and um, I do have some mediumship abilities um, that I, I stumbled upon when I got into the death work. I could totally <laughs> see that happening. <laughs> right? Yeah. You, you start working around them a lot and, you know, sometimes they don't stop talking after they die. That's what I was just thinking, like, Bob, you're dead. Yeah. Like, what, what are we yeah, doing? No, it, it was a trip when I, yeah, I thought, I mean, I, I went and saw that doctor, the one that died. And I was like, um, you know, is there something going on with my brain? Am I stumbling upon schizophrenia here? Right. Like, is this a late break? Like I'm a little concerned. Yeah, exactly. And I remember she was, she, she's like, do you want me to give you the number to my psychic? And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) So it opened my mind to that. I wasn't losing my mind. Yeah. So it was when she died that, um, uh, she kept playing these fruit and sugar songs. And I was just like, what the actual fuck? Like mm-hmm. when I would be going to my, the new doctor, like the song watermelon sugar high by <laughs> Harry Styles <laughs> just kept coming on. And I'm like, and then sugar by Maroon five, but we're not talking once or twice. Like I would change the channel would be on again. I would change the channel. Now her and I had established some things right before she died. Favorite numbers, favorite colors, favorite songs, favorite. I was like, what do we have to lose? You know? And so, um, when she died, like I said, those songs, like as she was dying, they started coming on and Simon, my husband was just like, is she communicating with you? And I was like, I think so. Cause I don't know what's going on with these songs. I thought it was sugar. I thought she was just talking about sugar. And so he ended up running this test and he's like, the chances that you could actually have a fruit and a separate sugar intolerance is like, we're talking 1% of this population. Right. Like, Cause I, heard of. I've done the FODMAPs, which I know they do for Crohn's sometimes. And it looks at all those, like the fructose and all the different types of sugars, but mm-hmm. it like, you're talking even more niche than FODMAPs, which is just yeah. like the most awful thing in the world. <laughs> the word, yeah. The one I'm talking about is it's actually called the Carol intolerance test. And, um, it's, the Institute is actually here in Washington out of Spokane, Washington. Uh-huh. And what's interesting about this test is, um, Dr. OG Carroll, who was a naturopath came up with it, I believe in the thirties. Um, and it just so happens that his good friend, Nikola Tesla <laughs> helped him develop this, um, test. And I was like, wait, this is based off the, your frequency. Oh my God. I've um, heard of this with like, you can, um, you test oh, the like of your blood. Yeah. And like, yes. Oh my God. So wait, I think I'm catching to this story. She was, she like passed and figured out like, oh, now that I'm on the other side and I'm like all yep. knowing this is what it is. And I have to let her know. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. It was <laughs> insane. And it so was it. It was. So he did the test three times because he was just like this. No fucking he, way. 
he couldn't believe it. And he's like, yeah, you have a fruit and a sugar intolerance. And I was just like, you know, it's been my culprit all my life. And he was like, so I need to prepare you, you know, if you're going to go full throttle and like just 100% take these things away, which I didn't realize how hard it would be mm-hmm. like flour, commercial flour is sifted in acidic acid in most cases, which is comes from lemons, some form of cit- citrus. Oh my God. Like it is in everything. When lactose can sometimes be used as a sweetener. I learned this. Yes. Cause he has that because I can have, I love it. I can have all the dairy in the world. Oh, amazing. <laughs> yes. I was like, yes. As long as I get, you know, you need something sugar away. And so, but I, it was such a learning curve to realize how much shit has fruit in it. Yeah, Sugar. Yes. We know that sugar is in a lot of stuff, but fruit is one of those things that doesn't have to be listed because it's part of the manufacturing process. But he's like, the problem is if you're eating that every day, it is definitely, you have a toxemia level that builds up over time. Mm. I was like, oh my gosh. And he goes, so 95% of supplements have, have citric acid in it. And I was just like, cause I always got sick with so many of the supplements I was taking over the years mm. and it just made no sense. And so I, I fully came off and, um, he was like, let's talk about what that's going to look like. Not just from a physical standpoint, but your abilities, um, all of this, because this is based off your frequency. He's like, I think you're really in for a crazy healing experience. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking, you know, he's like, are you ready for that? And I, I think if you would have asked me any other time in my life, I would have said yes, without having any clue what he was talking about. Right. Was he just because of the relationship I had with my previous doctor um, and him saying that I just kind of knew that I hadn't processed a lot of stuff in my life. And I was like, oh boy, I think this is going to be a lot of the work that I do with my clients, which is Mm. called life review. And I would say about two months into the process is when I, for the most part in 2020 for in early 2021 locked, essentially locked myself in the office. Um, had my headphones on for about eight hours a day. Cause that's a, that's one of the main ways I communicate with the dead is through music mm-hmm. and, um, was able to now realize stuff I didn't realize in the past, meaning they were telling me, Hey, if you, you know, that gut feeling you had about that situation. Yeah, here it was true. Or here's what really happened. And I'm a kind of person that I need what, as I call human verification. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they would know. Okay. You, I got to still talk to somebody that's alive. Mm-hmm. that can verify what you're supposedly telling me. And so once that process started and I was getting a lot of verification of what was happening, I realized essentially I was doing shamanic work completely, not on my own, but being guided by dead people, which isn't usually probably the, I wouldn't recommend that to other people. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I would recommend having a person also kind of help. But I think at that point, I just knew that I don't, I did hire a medium that was a friend that I was like, okay, I'm going to need some guidance through this. Mm. Um, and also to hone in on those skills, but to really, I was like, I don't think I should do this fully alone. And so, yeah, I just went through it. 
And it was at that time that I was like, I've got to get, I don't know how to let it go now. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now I've recognized and I've, I'm trying to process. I'm like, I don't know how to process it though. And that was the idea that led me to um, doing the music. Cause I walked away from the music industry. Cause I gained all this weight from, you know, from the food that was just causing so much inflammation in my body. Yeah. Not that that should matter, but in the music industry, that's all that's looked at is, mm-hmm. you know, how you look. And mm-hmm. um, I realized that was the stupidest reason I could have walked away from my dreams. So here I am at 40, did the healing work. And what's crazy about it all, because the album, you know, it's almost done is um my businesses are doing much better Mm. I was like oh okay there's that personal connection (laughs) once you get you know once you get in tune with yourself now you can keep it a lot more real with the people you're working with and especially because the work I do you know I was like this you can't you know really and I hate that whole like fake it till you make it kind of attitude but Cause you can't with this work, you can't really fake it till you make it. You just got to jump in and be as authentic as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. And I never felt like I could be authentic. I was like, I don't know who I am. I don't know who I am. And I felt really bad about that. Like I felt really like unauthentic mm-hmm. and I didn't, I didn't feel like I was being fake to people because I didn't know who I was. Right. Right. So it's like, well, I'm not, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I don't know who I am. And uh, so, yeah, that was when I did that work and actually like really, really did it. I was able, and I, I did stop working for a little bit. I was taking, you know, some clients on, but I realized I was not in a place in my life for a good six months to really be walking somebody else through their death. Mm Mm-hmm. And, um, I remember the first client I took, um, on after kind of going through this process and in the, you know, I was in the middle of recording the album and I just remember it was so not more real, but you know how I was talking about those boundaries. It was so much easier not to feel like I was being a people pleaser. Oh, wow. And to just really own what Mm -hmm. I would and wouldn't do. Um, it's really easy to get butt hurt in this work. <laughs> and I say mm-hmm. it's really, I mean, the shit people say when someone's grieving, you cannot take it, but dual doulas will take that so personal because of just who we are. Mm-hmm. And, um, by doing this work, it is much easier not to take shit so personal and yeah. just realize we are all walking through some shit right now in general. Uh, you know, it's the, the climate of the world speaks mm-hmm. volumes to that. Um, mm-hmm. It just took a pandemic to shine a light on things that were already there. Yes. And so that was the one main thing I realized when I went back into my business, because I realized, you know, with the death duel at work, I wasn't being as called to always want to be by somebody as they die. Yeah. And that's most people are called to this work because they want to be with somebody as they're dying. It's mm-hmm. just this feeling that they get. And I was like, that's more about me though, still. Right. That's not 
most people don't actually need somebody by their side as they're dying. It's the most natural thing we're going to do. And in fact, a lot of people will wait till their loved one goes to the bathroom and they're like, and I'm out now. Like they will wait. Often. A lot of animals do that too, right? Like they'll go away. I remember hearing stories like that all the time. And when we had a, a cat that was passing away, like she hit herself, she'd go hide in the closet. And I felt this a massive guilt for not being there at the time. Right. But it's what she wanted. It's what animals do that. Most of the time they don't want us around. It's so true. And I still, you know, my grandmother did that. Mm-hmm. We have this perfect perfect honestly like when you think of how what would be a perfect death with my grandfather um of us all being around his bed but that's what he wanted that's how he lived life he was the boisterous person you know he came from a family of like 13 siblings he was the the essentially kind of the patriarch you know mm-hmm. people went to victor you know yeah. for advice people he it's just who he was so when he was dying he definitely loved that we were all kind of doting over him and mm-hmm. part of that process now my grandmother was the opposite she was a very introverted um peaceful person and you know she did not like people to fuss over her at all And so I had spent 24 hours when I was pregnant. And so I, I remember just trying to do the whole vigiling by her side Mm -hmm. the whole time. And I had done it for 24 hours and I went home to take a nap and that's when she died. And I had the worst. I was like, you let me be with you for, you know, so, but your last breath, like Uh one time I wanted, you know, and So I had, you know, that was all stuff I had to work with on my own because we often want to like, well, why? Like, why did you not wait? Why did, again, it's one of those things that personality type, we often die how we live. And Mm. so I had to, you know, I had to work through that on my own of not having the guilt and, um, and all that that can come with grief. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I have to often tell people, um, it's one of the main roles of a doula is reassuring people that's how they wanted it. Yeah. That's really beautiful how you were able to use kind of your own healing journey to just make this process that is so natural, just even more, I guess he, I'd say healing again for people like the person passing the people around them, um, just to make it as easy on everyone as possible. Well, and grief is so complicated, right? I mean, so many people are walking around, think that they have a mental illness or that something's really wrong. When in reality, we can hold on to grief forever. Mm-hmm. And it also is a process of um, not letting go, but learning how to walk with it and not let it consume our lives. Um, it's easy to let it consume life and not even realize that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as somebody's dying, all this, so it's so often for things to come to the surface. And they, you know, a lot of people expect themselves to work through it or you know they kind of give themselves sometimes a time frame 
Right. Which is probably the worst thing that we can ever do. Um, not only to ourselves, but it's the worst thing we can do and project onto somebody else. Yet mm-hmm. we, it's so common that we project, man, their mom died like three years ago. And I swear to God, she's still acting like she died yesterday. I mean, the comments that I hear that are similar to that, it, it, it happens so often. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, it's so different from it for everybody. But one thing I've noticed with grief is there is shit that will come to the surface that you might want to keep trying to bury as much as you can. But that's why it's there is grief is meant to come to the surface and be processed so you can learn how to walk with it through life. But we just don't have enough people and a profession that essentially has taught people how to do that yeah people have no idea how to observe or process grief oh it's like that thing we don't talk about right it's very ingrained in our culture we don't talk about it and like the older I've gotten right like all your friends start losing people and you're like what do I say like I had a girlfriend who she lost like it was like five or more people in the span of two years. And I just, I didn't even know what to say. Cause every time I turned around, it was someone and mm-hmm. I say that. And then she passed away in oh 20, gosh. um, it's not even funny, but it's funny. And yeah, no, it's one of those, <laughs> death is actually, it's like, it, it, it's one of those things. It's like, and the, it, it, you actually, I feel a lot of people, part of the process is adding humor to it and we need to because it helps us process yeah because I mean that was it like she passed away in 2020 her baby had just been more than three months ago it was like a tragic thing but she had been chasing from that grief of making sure she was the healthiest she could be because so many of her family wasn't and that led to this and then it was like are you fucking kidding me that this uh, piece of farming equipment is what got you? Like, oh, I'm mad wow. as hell. Like, yeah. like, um, <laughs> but I think that, you know, even with that, I'd had lost people before and stuff like that, but it still, it doesn't get easier. No, because we don't talk about it as a society about how awful it is or how awful it is to be the one having to call your friends and be like, you know, our girl is gone. Like, yeah. And that's an other, you know, that. So there's this other level of grief and it's a form of PTSD. Mm. And that it's been I see it now because of social media. Mm-hmm. Somebody dies. And what do we do? We go post about it immediately. Mm-hmm. I have experienced that before where I found out about a friend's death within like he died and within, I think an hour, maybe two hours, somebody posted it. And I just remember, uh, if I I mean, yeah. The, per- to the person that posted it, he was just a very social person. But the problem is that he had, s- there were so many friends that saw the post that had not gotten a phone call. Yeah. Cause it'd been an and, hour. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think that is so disrespectful. And I see that happen a lot. Like that kind of happened um, with her, like a lot of family and friends had been called, but then I saw where the news article was starting to get shared. And I like messaged, the girl 
um, who was closest to the family was like, you need to let everybody know this is getting out. So it's like, you're going to start getting bombarded. And I was, it, it's not fair. Cause you're right. It takes away from people. They did want to tell it takes away from them processing. Um, and I get wanting to like share your sadness and your grief, but you have to be really careful with that. Like there needs to be some etiquette on that. There is, you know, there needs, there needs to be etiquette about that. And that's the problem is, you know, when we get that kind of information back at, you know, before social media, it was, you picked up the phone and started calling, you know, you you would do it that way. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't that like PTSD factor of like, you're just scrolling and that's how you find out. Um, Mm -hmm. Granted, a lot of people do talk about that phone call, you know, that phone call becomes now their life. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, In fact, with people that I work with that are really having a hard time moving forward. And, and that looks different for everybody. It's a matter of, like, as I say, learning just how to walk with it. We all carry it differently, but the people that definitely feel that become immobilized, meaning mm-hmm. they can't leave the house. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen people that, I mean, I can't believe the amount of boxes that they have around their house because that's like, they order everything. They, they literally do not leave their house out mm-hmm. of complete, just, I think it's many things, depression, fear, anxiety, all of it. Um, and a lot of times when I talk to those people, they always go back to the phone call. Mm-hmm. They're just like, it was that phone call that did it. Like it just, and I, I get it. And so now, so, you know, this was social media and, you know, I just went through this with, um, I have a friend that their friend from high school, um, he had been missing for a while and they found his, the body, um, mm-hmm. and the, the wife was made, you know, she's just like, I can't keep up. I can't like, she's like, from the moment that I got the knock on the door from the sheriff. She's like, now we're having to plan this, you know, um, celebration of life. And then, and she's just like, I never knew how difficult this all was. And it just, I, my heart just goes out because I'm like, oh, this having to f- deal with the, you know, strategic, um, ness of, you know, it's an event, you know, it, mm-hmm. anybody that's ever planned an event, some people think it's fun. I was in the event industry. So it's like, I kind of roll my eyes. So I actually don't think it's fun anymore, yeah. but you know, you having to plan something and be hospitable. I never understood that concept Mm-mm. of, of funerals of why does everybody go back to the house of the person's loved one that just died? Like, why do we put the pressure on their loved one to go cater, <laughs> you know, something for after the funeral. It's always, and I understand the need to be around people, but I've always kind of been like, why is it the person closest to them? Because uh, it's just, it's just so much work. It's so much work. And then there's all that cleanup and like, not everyone's going to ask for help with that either. And so it's just going to sit unless you have those yeah. people around you that are like, I'm just handling this shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. it, yeah. yeah. And then everybody forgets. Like, I think that's the, not like forgets, forgets, but you know, it's six months past and you're still really just going through the motions, but people have in a sense, they've moved past it. And I think that's, oh, they're, they've moved on. Yeah. 
they've um, the cards stop coming, the gift cards, you know, for food stop coming the, you know, so it's about three to four weeks that the lasagna and casseroles stop coming, mm-hmm. which most people don't like that shit anyways. Right. And so, you know, we're just living in this constant, like, well, this is what we've done for so many years. And that's kind of nice as the role of the death doula, we can kind of educate people and be like, no, there's really no reason to keep doing this mundane tradition. Yeah. You know, like it just, it makes no sense at all. And that's why I tell a lot of people when they, they say they don't know how to help somebody that's grieving. The number one thing I tell them is don't forget about them in six months. Mm-hmm. that's when the shit really gets serious. That's yeah. when you really start to settle in because that's when people start to shy away because mm-hmm. they don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem is we don't know what to say to people. Um, you know, we always say, sorry for your loss. <sighs> Hearing that I, over and over and over and over and over again, um, it actually really starts to, I think, wear on somebody's psyche. I bet. Um, hearing the word loss over and over and over again is actually can be a little bit triggering. Um, and that's why I tell people the best thing to do, like, and it seems the reason it's hard for people to do this is because they feel like they're doing nothing. Mm-hmm. And that is to do nothing, to just be there and listen. Mm-hmm. No advice, not even a hug. People always want to embrace embracing is a fix it mentality. Mm-hmm. Giving somebody a hug is not going to make them feel better. In fact, sometimes it's going to make them feel worse. Mm-hmm. I'll crack during a hug. You know what I mean? Like if someone touches me, sometimes that's when I crack. So I'm almost like, I'm a very huggy person, but if I'm like, not, mm-hmm. if I'm on the verge, I'm like, Mm-mm, I don't want to do this right now. <laughs> All about learning, you know, and it, and it really is, this is part of the, ed- the education part of a death doula is teaching somebody how to read people's body language Mm -hmm. of when they're grieving. Um, A lot of people, it's actually really pretty easy to read somebody's body language when they're grieving and to then know what is the best way to engage with them. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, cause like it can be your best friend and you might be like, super touchy feely with that best friend. And all of a sudden, you know, they're noticed they're holding back a lot and we go to want to be that same normal when in reality, we got to learn how to read where they are in that point. Um, in grief work, they even talk about sometimes not even handing, um, the tissue box to somebody. So in certain, um, like grief groups, Instead of handing the tissue box or handing somebody tissue as the person that's facilitating that group, I just make sure there's enough tissue boxes that somebody that's grieving will be able to see it, but not have it given to them. Mm -hmm. In some ways, we have got to seek out the things that we need ourselves, but we're so powerful. Well, we're such a fix it society. I got to fix it. I got to give her the, I got to do it. I got no just make sure it's there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard because we feel deep down. We're like, Oh my God, I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing anything. Oh my God. I suck. I suck so bad. Right. No, you actually rock because you're just simply being in that space with them and being present. 
Mm-hmm. That's, that's so much what's needed. Like, added, but it's uncomfortable because we're not, it's not who we are as a society. Right. Mm-hmm. And so to actually just be present and just remind them that whatever they need us to do, we can be there and do it. Mm-hmm. But instead of always suggesting. Yeah. Most people know what to do them for themselves when they, cause there's almost a survival mode in grief. And so when they're ready, they'll ask for it. Mm-hmm. Even if they're, you know, we don't speak up and ask for what we want sometimes. Part of that is part of grief of mm-hmm. we got to let them, the person that's grieving, learn how to ask for that help. Mm-hmm. It's part of the process. Yeah. It's like a kid. If you never let them um, actually ask for what they need, right? If they're always just doing the, like, that the whole thing, then yes. they don't learn to say, like... Yeah pick yeah. me up or, yep. or yep. can you grab this for me or whatever? Yep. And it's kind of like, it goes back to being a business owner. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you have to like, know when you, to ask for help and when to step back. Yeah. Uh, and how to just be present with somebody too, when they're, you know, cause as business owners, we're all walking, everyone's walking around with grief mm-hmm. and it's just, uh, it's just how we react and how we interact with, with everybody else. But yeah, unfortunately, no one's teaching us about this, whether it's a business owner or whether you own a business that has employees and you don't know how to create that kind of environment. That's probably the number one thing I see that's just beyond fucked up is when people have to go back to work. Yes. And you know, it's just, they go back and it's just the most awkward situation. And, um, yeah, it's one of those things that I'd like to see, you know, more, maybe it's something I'll do eventually of training, like honest, like grief training for the work environment. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just don't be a dick. Like, you know, it's just that simple. Cause I can't believe just what some people go back to and the, mm-hmm. like how stupid their bosses are, their manager. I'm just like, Oh my God. God, if they just had some simple training around how to be around somebody when they're grieving. Uh, yeah, it's, it's silly. It would be so much better. And the topic of grief is actually what your is part of the focus of your record or the whole focus of your record. The whole thing. Wow. A lot of people don't realize that grief, you know, we always associate it with death. Mm -hmm. There's 40 forms of grief. Wow. And, uh, and that's what I mean. If we always see this, like, it crosses into that line of mental health mm-hmm. of, um, you know, I've definitely seen people, I think, get labeled with something. Uh, and I'm like, I really think could just, cause I know them for, you know, since their childhood, I'm like, Oof, I really think a lot of this is still stemming around this form of grief that now it has stumbled into mental health because they never, uh, were able to learn how to process and so that was my, the album. I realized what I went through in my internship is mm-hmm. grief. There's, cause there was a loss of control that I had. I had no idea I was going to go into that situation and lose complete and utter control of my body mm-hmm. um, and what people were saying or doing to it. Um, that, I mean, the body is used in the music industry completely. <laughs> Mm. Um, and so I never, until I went and worked on that and I was like, Oh, good God. <laughs> I was like, Oh shit, this is not going to be like, a 
a short process or an easy process. Cause I realized if I didn't process some of this shit from 25 years ago, you know, I'm like, Oh gosh, you know, I got to bring all of that to the surface and now process it. And that's why I did the, the music the album is, is music is a way for me to process. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done plenty of counseling in my life. So that's why I was like, nah, yeah. I was like, I could go that route, but I don't think it's going to give me what I need. No, music's so different. Like there's, I mean, I even always, ever since I lost the first person close to me, um, like there's always a song that I play that makes me make whenever I've lost someone and it's just, it's part of what helps heal that. I think music is one of those really powerful things, not just for the listener, but people forget how cathartic it is for the writer. Yeah. Oh yeah. I had no idea. Um, um, sorry, I'm getting a text from my husband. I was like, no, I can hear him right there. <laughs> I'm like, he's pee on that door. Um, yeah, it's music is like, I, I think I knew to, to go back to music and, and actually write music. Um, when my doctor was using it to communicate what was wrong with me. Mm. Um, and then my new doctor, the one that she knew he had walked away from a major record deal. Wow. And it's just when he told me that, and like, he opened up for like a major musician and I, and he was like, yeah, I did one album. And I just remember thinking, cause I had, I had, I have an album that I did 20 years ago. It was uh, an EP as we call it. So five mm-hmm. songs. And I just remember like, it just struck a chord in the most, like it really brought a lot of angry emotion up. Cause I realized I never got that opportunity. I never wrote the album that could have done that. Instead, I walked away. And so it was like all these signs again, (laughs) you know, go do it. And so um, what's been interesting with every song that I've written, and I kind of anticipated this because of my ability to, to communicate with, with some people in my life that were um, now dead. Um, Some people from the music industry that had a huge impact in my life had recently died also. before I embarked on that. And I was just like, this is not a coincidence. And, um, and my vocal abilities changed tremendously over 20 years. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, when I went back into the studio, a different voice was there that I've never had before. Wow. And I just remember thinking like, do you guys have that ability? Like you dead (laughs) folks, like you really do that? Like, right. and And it wasn't that what they were doing is just reminding me of what, some of the things that I knew how to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I just couldn't tap into it back then. Yeah. And so music is very, I realized like this was the way to heal, but also to learn how to communicate even further. Cause each and every song that I did, a major revelation came from the song after it was done wow. to the point that when song number four was done, I just was like, this is going to happen with nearly every song. Like there's going to be some major something that just shakes me to my core. And yeah, it just kept happening. That's beautiful. Yeah. So it's, yeah. And like I said, it just, it, it started then trickle down as the trickle down theory works in certain, very certain things. (laughs) 
<laughs> so uh, now that I believe that maybe Reagan's trickle down theory worked, for her, but but in this case, I realized I was like, oh, this is really starting to trickle into other parts of my life, but especially business because the biggest thing was boundaries that I never had. Yes, I think I've heard it said recently something about entrepreneurship is one of the biggest healing journeys you will ever undertake. And I think if you're doing it right, I mean, I guess there's no right or wrong, but you know what I'm saying? I think it can really be that if you'll let it. And I think that's so beautiful. And I can't wait to listen to your album and see how all of that came together for you. Thank you. Yeah. I'm I'm excited to get it finally. It's been so hard. I've been releasing some of the songs as they come out, like just on YouTube before um, I stream them and whatnot. And uh, I'll never forget releasing that first song Mm. Um, was such a bit like, I was just like, oh gosh, like it's the most vulnerable feeling because it's been 15 years since I'd released a song. And the song I released before (laughs) I wrote it, but somebody else sang it. Mm-hmm. and um you know that gave me a taste of something that I also walked away from because right. that one actually um got radio airplay and wow. and you know I just remember I was like wow just again it's amazing and I think that's the part of that entrepreneurship journey mm-hmm. is you will look back at things and be like what the fuck was I thinking you know? <laughs> right <laughs> and in that case I was why did I walk away from that and I know it was because I was unhealthy in the sense of with my body I just felt like I was it wasn't just the way that I physically was changing um, visually to people, mm-hmm. but it was also what was going on inside of my body. I just yeah. couldn't do what I wanted. And when, so when I went to the recording studio to sing this time around, you know, I was like, whoa, whose voice is that? I realized that inflammation actually affects things like even our vocal cords. Like it just, yeah. it, it floored me. And so just knowing, I, now I just keep an open mind of knowing that damn, things can really affect you. And just because I'm 40 and, you know, not meeting the standards of the music industry, you know, which is all bullshit. It is all bullshit. It is such bullshit. And, um, you know, in this time, not playing by anybody's rules. Yes. Yeah. I I, love that. Yeah. I, that's the one example I want to put out there is, you know, to people do not fucking like, do not keep living by these standards that people talk about because it's utter bullshit. Yes. Oh my gosh. I love that. That's so powerful. Let's end on that note. You yes. all the utter bullshit comment. Yes. Right. I love it. Like go check the show notes. We've got all the ways that you can connect with Megan, her Facebook, her Instagram, and her record is dropping this spring. Um, so definitely be on the lookout for it. So you can hear just this transformation like that she has shared with us. You can hear it through her album. So thank you so much for being here and for chatting with me. Um, It was wonderful. Ah, this was so much fun. And you're right. We can just talk forever. Welcome to the Hitting Turbulence podcast, a place where we discuss beautiful ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Dr. Jade Gary, but just call me Jade. I'm a course creation expert and an intuitive business mentor. I help women package up their brilliance into impactful courses, 
programs, webinars, videos, and more. But we dive so much deeper by tapping into my intuitive and spiritual gifts. I love helping women harness their power and potential by connecting more deeply with themselves via tarot, crystals, pendulums, and other powerful tools. I'm so excited that you are tuning in to this episode, starting now.